All right, I'm a little confused because I saw a number of you at the at the service outside earlier. What's going on? Is there is it my birthday and I don't know? Are y'all here for a party or? Okay, well, I'm glad glad you're here. Maybe if you didn't if it didn't sink in the first time, maybe it'll happen on, on the second. What a special day! I invite you to turn either in your Bible or to follow along as it's printed in the bulletin to First Thessalonians chapter one, verses one to five. We began studying this very brief letter in the New Testament. We began last Sunday and plan to keep going on this for a while. First Thessalonians was uh, an interesting letter in that uh, you can read in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas, who's also called Silvanus, uh, they, they went to this city that was a very important city. It was on the Aegean Sea. It had a major Roman road like an interstate that went through it, which connected it to many other major cities. Uh, and they went there, and as was Paul's custom, he went to the Jewish synagogue on several Sabbaths, and he reasoned with people from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and die and that Jesus was the Messiah. As a result of those teaching times in the synagogue, it says that the Bible says that a large number of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles believed. So there was great fruit from that teaching ministry. Uh, opposition arose, as typically happened, and he, Paul, was forced to find another place to meet rather than the synagogue, and so a citizen there named Jason, he invited him to use his house. So Paul and Timothy and Silas stayed there for a while longer, continued to teach, continued to evangelize, continued to establish these new Christians. Then they had to leave. The opposition got so strong they had to leave. They went to the city of Athens, then they went to the city of Corinth. Now a year has passed. They are concerned about how the, these Christians that are now a year old back in Thessalonica, how they're doing. So Paul sends Timothy back to them. Timothy goes, visits with them, talks to them, and returns to Paul and gives a fantastic report. They're doing great. And so Paul writes this letter. He writes this letter back to them. They're about a year old in the faith. Some of the letters in the New Testament, like the letter to the Galatian church or the Corinthian church, had a lot of problems they had to deal with. Some, some of the letters are confrontational, dealing with sin, urging the people to repent. Not this letter. Uh, it's encouraging. He's basically saying, you, uh, this church, this young church in Thessalonica is doing great. So if you need encouragement, and I guess we all do right now, this is an excellent letter if you've never read it or studied it to spend your time doing so even over the next couple of months. So here's what the opening five verses say. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So ends the reading of, of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. I don't like to admit it, but I find it very difficult to change my habits and behavior. 
Mark Twain, but I'm in present good company because Mark Twain said, quitting smoking is the easiest thing I've ever done. I've done it hundreds of times. So how is it that we change? How do people change? And so as we look at just a couple of verses today and as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's talk about how we change. And primarily it's from being knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are chosen. Paul refers to them right there in verses four and following as brothers, brothers and sisters. It's a term, a generic term. It's not men only. That's, there's another word for that. This is uh, men and women, brothers and sisters. As a young Christian, one of the most amazing Bible verses that I was introduced to was the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. And it says, But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right or the privilege to become the children of God. So I had received Christ, now I had siblings in the faith. And as a teenager, I was very uncomfortable around my Christian friends. They made me, they didn't mean to, but I perceived it, I, it made me feel guilty. And I uh, experienced the change that takes place that is one of the indications when you come to know Christ. She's upset she won't get to hear the rest of my sermon. Anyway, <laughs> 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So one of the indicators of new life in Christ is we have a love for Christians. And it's not something we have to develop over a long period of time. I vividly remember wanting to be around the very people I had felt uncomfortable with because I, I wanted to hear people talk about God. I wanted to be able to bring up God in a conversation and not feel embarrassed about it or feel strange. So that's one of the marks of, of a new Christian is you have a love for the brethren. And that's how he refers to them as brothers and sisters. Uh, but he also says that they are loved by God. Loved by God. What a positive characteristic. What a positive thing to think about someone else. Do you see someone walk by? I sure say, now that guy is loved by God. Or that woman is loved by God. Or do you look in the mirror and say, you are loved by God. He's not speaking here of God's general love of all humanity and general mercy over all people. Here he's speaking of the particular love that God has for his redeemed people. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This was kind of a new thought for me as I prepared this, studied this, and thought about it. And that is that when I grew up, and even now, probably the, the message that's been communicated by the Christian church to the culture is God loves you. Uh, God loves you. But we have to stop and think, how do they understand that? How does a person who's not a believer, who has no exposure to the Bible or to the Christian faith, how does that person interpret that? I had a speech professor say, it isn't what you say, it's what other people hear. So what do, does the typical person in America that just goes with the flow downstream of culture, what do they think about? I would imagine 
they think what Hollywood and media say about love. And that is romantic, very conditional, emotional infatuation. Here's what I mean. Let me give you two examples of a type of love. Just imagine outside on Mulberry, the park there is called Lamar Park, the trees, the median, where at our outdoor service many of you sit. Imagine a young man sitting there on one of those benches and a, a young woman walks by. He's never met her, but he is taken with her beauty and her, the way she moves and, and her hair and everything about her, her wardrobe. And he is smitten. It's like, where has she been all my life? Well, after a few days, he meets her and they talk and they find out they have such a connection, their personalities are complementary, and they laugh at the same things. There's witty conversation, and they have lots of things in common, and he is head over heels. So after a few weeks, he says, can I tell you something? She says, yes. He says, I, I think you are the most, let's call her Barbara, I, I think you are the most beautiful person I've ever met. I, he, I, I just lose myself in your eyes, and, and your smile, oh, it just radiates, and and your personality and the way you treat people and the way you treat me and, and uh, everything about you. I am just, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, I love you. Now, that's, we're used to that kind of depiction of love. But let me give you another one. Think about a woman sitting on the bench and a guy walks by. We'll call him Chip. And, and she goes, Ugh, where did he come from? And after a few weeks, they meet, and they get to know each other. And after a while, she says, I, I'd like to tell you something. Can I tell you something? I said, sure. I don't find anything about you attractive. You are self-absorbed. You are one person in public. You're another person in private. You really don't read the letters I sent to you, you don't return my phone calls, you don't treat me with respect, you don't treat anyone respect, you think only on, of yourself. Now, I want to tell you something. From the bottom of my heart, I love you. Which of those two is more reflective of God's love? That one. But, and, and the reason is, and this is not shallow water right here, this is deep water, God's love is connected to the rest of his character. And he loves because he loves. He is love. He chooses to love unconditionally. So I think, I'm not saying it's wrong just to announce to the culture God loves you. I'm just, let's be realistic about what's being heard. Well, of course he loves me. I'm kind of cute. Of course everybody else likes me. Of course God loves me. That is not what's being spoken about at all. It's God's love that's unconditional where, back to the story, she could say, in fact, Chip, I'll never love you more or less than I love you right now, strictly because I choose to do so. That's God's love. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that secure? We can't earn it. We can't lose it in Christ. And so, 
here he tells him, you're loved by God. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of yesteryear, said, I know of no truth in the whole Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as that of the love of God. So Paul writes to them, first, their love. Secondly, he says about them and us, you are chosen. When you read through the New Testament, you will quickly encounter words like chosen or elect, and it brings up the doctrine of election, which states that God chooses whom to save. And that is controversial. It's always controversial, the doctrine of election, since it seems unfair. Why would God choose some and not others? And why not everyone? And let me give you the formal definition of the doctrine of election, just so you know what I'm talking about. This is the formal definition. The doctrine of election declares that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all people, or he could have chosen to save none, but he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men might do but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. Now, that's a brain load right there. But it runs, the doctrine of election runs through Scripture. And it begins, as Justin mentioned before, the baptism. It begins with the call of Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God made a choice of his, uh, uh, his genealogy, what am I thinking about, all of his ancestors, all of Abraham's ancestors to be God's treasured possession, so it says in Genesis 12. And so the doctrine of election in the Bible, if you've never studied it, it's never mentioned as a philosophical debate. It's never mentioned like, let's hey, get together in a smoke-filled dark room and, and talk about how could this be. No, it's very practical. You know where you find it? You find it when people are going through hard times, like in Romans chapter 9. They were experiencing persecution. And it's at those times you think, is God for me or God against me? And that's when you have these stellar passages like Romans 8 and Romans 9 on, on the foreknowledge and electing and predestination of God. It's when we are proud. And he says, why are you proud? God does everything. There's no room for pride in the Christian life, only humility. Those are the contexts that election is described in the Bible. So I want you to know, though, that the only explanation of God's motivation in election is his love, his unconditional love. He chooses because he loves, and he loves because he loves. That's it. There's no condition that we can or have met. And he says of them, you're loved and you're chosen. But what throws you, if you look back at verse 4 and 5, we know you're chosen. Now, uh, wait a minute. I thought that's only known in the mind of God. How could they know that the 
believers in Thessalonica were chosen. Does he have some kind of beeper that goes off, an elect detector, you know, and that's an elect person over there? No. How did they know that? Well, he tells us. He tells us because they'd seen the power. The gospel came forth in power and in conviction by the, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. So that brings us to the last one. They are loved, we are loved, we are chosen, and last of all, we are changed. We are changed. How did they know that they were chosen? They saw the result of the gospel coming to them, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, the gospel contains words. The gospel means good news. And in a general sense, we may say that about any of the teaching of Christianity to say that's the gospel. But the gospel message is very specific. Let me give you the outline, just the words. God created our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. They were made to have a perfect relationship with him. They could literally walk and talk with him. He gave them one prohibition, and that was not to eat of a particular tree. They violated that prohibition, and the Bible calls that sin or missing the mark. As a result of that, they died spiritually. That relationship where they walked and talked with God now was broken. God punished them, but even in the punishment, he said he would send a redeemer who would make things right. So the Old Testament is filled with prophecies leading up to the Redeemer who came, that was Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. He obeyed God's law. He did something Adam and Eve could never do. He kept God's law in every respect. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified and die on a Roman cross. He died as a substitute and he died as a sacrifice. He died in my place as a substitute, meaning as a sinner that we all are, my sin deserves death. God says the punishment or the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die, either you or someone else. Christ is the substitute. And so on the cross, he took the burden of my sin, the burden of his people's sin onto him and God punished him in our place. So he was a sacrifice or substitute at that point. Then he died as a sacrifice. Someone has to die for the punishment for sin is death. He died. He was really dead. The spear in his side proved it. He was buried in a a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He appeared not only to his disciples, but to more than 2,000 people in total over a period of 40 days. And the last commandment he gave to his followers was to go into all the world and make disciples, to tell people what Christ had done. Now, those are all just words. How do we then receive that? Well, two words, believe and repent. We believe that Christ was who he said he was. We believe that, that I'm, a, I'm a sinner, that I cannot save myself. I can't do enough good things to earn God's favor because of my sin. So Christ died for me. I believe that, and I believe he makes me right with God, and I repent. That means turn from going one way and going the other. Lord, I want to live for myself and do what I want to do, and then I repent, I turn and say, Lord, now I want to follow you in all respects. When you believe and you repent, then you, the gospel, the words, bring in the power of Christ, and he begins to change you from the inside out. If you are hearing this like, well, you know, the message of Christianity is just to clean myself up, just to make myself better, just to improve myself, you don't understand. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, but the message of the gospel is not that we clean up the outside, but that Christ comes and from the inside out, he changes us. 
And I want to end by telling you about an example of the power of the gospel. So if you just hear the gospel or just read the gospel, but you don't believe it or it goes one ear out the other, that is not the power of God. That's just words, as Paul said, in word only. But when you believe, then there's power that you can't imagine to bring change in your life. I dropped out of Facebook 10 years ago. I lasted about two weeks, and I said, this thing's creating a monster. I mean, in the church, and people were asking me to do things. They were bypassing my secretary, and I just said, I'm getting off of this. So during COVID, I said, well, I need to reconnect, I said to myself. Um, I, I need to reconnect in, in social media, and we were trying to decide to use that for uh, indoor services with video and all that. So, so I got back on, and I was pleasantly surprised to reconnect with a lot of childhood and high school friends that I've never seen since. That's probably been the most engaging thing for me, just to see and keep up with and see who's alive, see who's not alive, see those kinds of things. And it's pretty common if you use Facebook to see people say, this is a picture of my dad. He would be 100 years old today. Today's his birthday if he was still alive. Or this was a picture of this person I love so much that if, if she was still alive, she would be, you know, 75 years old today. Well, two weeks ago, I saw a picture of a childhood friend of mine uh, that died 32 years ago. And his widow, named Pam, had put his picture up and said, 32 years ago today, we began a new journey, speaking of herself and their three children. Now, Jimmy, or Jim as an adult, but Jimmy that I grew up with, he died of a congenital heart problem that no one knew anything about. He died suddenly in a hotel room on a business trip. So I saw that, and my mind was flooded with memories because we both became Christians about the same time. And we were in the same high school. And we stayed in contact through college and out of college. So I decided to write to her. I had not seen her since high school. So she put on there, it was April the 14th, remembering Jimmy today, 32 years ago, we began our new journey. So I wrote, I said, Pam, I wanted to say more about Jimmy away from the public post. It seems like you two dated from early on, but what I remember most was how the Lord really worked in both me and Jimmy our senior year in high school. We both read the book, God's Smuggler. God's Smuggler was about a man named Brother Andrew taking Bibles into Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Great book, by the way, if you've never read it. I said, we both read the book God's Smuggler and it had a profound effect. I remember sitting in a class at Gadsden High School and turning around and seeing Jimmy reading that book. He looked at me and just shook his head as if to say, this is absolutely amazing. He and I and Eddie Gilker spent a lot of time together, very positive times of fellowship as young believers. I still remember where I was and what I was doing when I got the word that Jimmy had so suddenly and unexpectedly died. A sad, sad day for me. I hope your mind and heart are filled to capacity with joyful memories today. Well, much to my surprise, she wrote me back. Said, Chip, you cannot know how touched I am to read this. I will definitely share this with our grown children. 
Together we made our memories after we lost Jimmy, but I still hold tight to those years when he was alive and the children were young. They were ages five, seven, and eight when he passed away. My heart is full of sweet memories, and for that I am grateful. God's faithfulness has been so amazing. Well, I know you can't envision all that I envision, but we grew up in the same neighborhood. And he, uh, he had no restraints. Verbally, actions, he would say whatever he wanted to say to whomever he wanted to say. Stayed in constant trouble with the teachers. He would use God's name in every hyphenated form imaginable. He would turn the air blue at any moment and just not think one thing about it with, with his language. And uh, so God got a hold of us at about the same time through a, a youth pastor there in my hometown. God used him. And I'm not saying this to sound funny or to exaggerate, but I remember praying with Jimmy and he had come to faith in Christ and he literally lost half his vocabulary in one night. It, it, was, it was bewildering to those of us in school. And no one had made an issue about that. No one said anything about it. And he began to grow, and sanctification is relative. <laughs> and uh, it, we all started at different places. But he would call me up after college. Uh, we didn't go to college together, but he'd come and stay with me. He lived in Birmingham, and he'd come, and then he'd call me and say, hey, just, he was kind of guy that stayed in touch. Hey, just in real open, telling you what was going on. What was that? That was the power of the gospel. It was inexplicable for any other thing. It wasn't in word only, but in power by the Holy Spirit with his conviction. Do you have that? You can. Some of you have heard this message thousands of times, and you still haven't believed, so you still haven't experienced the power, I imagine, in a crowd this size. Repent, believe, trust in him, and that's what this table reminds us of.